Welcome to Failed Utopia, the podcast about utopian ideas and paradise lost. We look at utopian concepts of the past, present, and future, as well as utopian societies and communes, which promise the world to eager followers, but inevitably fail when it all starts to unravel. Hey friends, it's Anna, your This Is Either Reality or I'm Tripping Balls podcast host. And this episode of Failed Utopia is about the narcotic farm in Lexington, Kentucky. Today you'll hear about addiction, science, wacky graham crackers, jazz, prison, unethical medical experimentation, and a weird diversion about William S. Burroughs that I really didn't plan on talking about, but that made me feel very indignant. Before we start, I also want to say hello and welcome to new listeners. Lots of new subscribers have been joining the Failed Utopia fam. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to tell your friends and rate or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. In lieu of my usual content warning that I use when I'm going to be talking about some dark or disturbing topics, I just want to let you know that in this episode, I will be frequently mentioning both drug addiction and treatment. I have no qualifications in the area of addiction, and nothing in this episode should be construed as advice or even information about addiction or treatment. If you don't think listening to this episode will serve you well, no worries, just skip this one and check out another episode from the Failed Utopia back catalog. And of course, a brand new episode will be out two weeks from this recording. If you or someone you know is struggling with drug addiction, I want you to know that recovery is possible and help is available. In the U.S., you can start by contacting the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at findtreatment.gov or 1-800-662-HELP. There are people standing by who want to help. That information and more resources are listed in the show notes. Starting around the 1920s, there was a big increase in heroin use in the United States, and society wasn't really prepared to cope with it. Addicts made easy targets for police who were looking to arrest people for burglary crimes because they figured out that people would go and steal to get money for a fix, and then obviously they would immediately go straight to places where they could buy drugs, so they would just constantly get arrested. But prison wardens didn't really want these people in their prisons. They kind of viewed people with drug addictions as being a little bit dissimilar to other prisoners. I think it was kind of an element of chaos that they thought these people would bring, whereas their regular prisoners, they really thought that they could rehabilitate and get on the straight and narrow using their usual tactics, but they didn't know how to deal with these drug addicts. 
So lacking any sort of societal understanding or infrastructure regarding drug abuse, let alone any type of actual treatment, users who were known to police couldn't really just stay on the streets because they kept getting arrested, but they also weren't wanted in prisons. Hospitals largely wouldn't treat them because they didn't know how. At this time in history, there was no science of addiction. By the end of the 1920s, prisons were overcrowded, and about a third of prisoners were incarcerated on drug charges. So in 1935, a federal facility on a thousand acres of farmland was opened near Lexington, Kentucky, to try to take the responsibility for drug-related charges off of the overburdened and ill-equipped prison system. They called it the Narcotic Farm. It was sometimes referred to as a new deal for junkies. Locals around the area just called it narco. Throughout the next few decades, prisoners with drug problems would be shipped there for incarceration and treatment. About two-thirds of the population were these prisoners, and as far as the remaining third, people could also check into the facility voluntarily for drug treatment. Throughout the 1930s to the 1960s, jazz musicians were a notable part of the clientele. The jazz world had a huge problem with addiction, transitioning heavily from alcohol and cocaine to heroin post-World War II. Fun fact that isn't all that fun, the music industry and especially the clubs and labels that featured Harlem jazz and bebop were basically run by the mafia. The Italian mafia had also organized new routes after World War II to bring drugs, especially heroin, through Europe to New York. Black musicians may have been especially vulnerable to exploitation by the mafia who ran the show, and the intersection of these factors seems to have led to some problems. Of course, Charlie Parker was sort of made the poster boy of this phenomenon, but lots of jazz artists did stints at the narcotic farm. Sonny Rollins, Chet Baker, Elvin Jones, Lee Morgan, Sonny Stitt, Benny Green, Jackie McLean, Red Rodney, Howard McGee, Ted Dameron, many others. These names may or may not mean anything to you, depending on your musical proclivities, but suffice it to say that many of these people went on to be considered legends of jazz, and therefore, there was some amazing music going on at Narco as they played concerts for patients and the public. At one time, there were supposedly no less than six jazz bands based at the facility. It was rumored that some musicians checked themselves into Lexington just for the chance to play with the masterful musicians who were there as patients. I talked a little bit about these super cool jazz bands and parties at drug rehabs in the Synanon episode of this podcast. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you might want to check out the very first episode of Failed Utopia. That was the Synanon episode, and that facility also was frequented by a lot of jazz musicians and known for its parties, and that was in the 1960s and 70s. 
Just about every source that I looked at regarding both Synanon and the Narcotic Farm made mention of this jazz musician thing. And I can't help but wonder if this singling out is at least partly race-based, since so many of them were black. Sure, a lot of jazz musicians did have drug problems, but so did a lot of other artists and musicians from other genres and other races. Obviously, a lot of the rock musicians of the 1960s and later did have a reputation for their partying and drug use, but so did many white artists and musicians back in jazz's golden age, but they didn't really have the same stigma surrounding them. For whatever reason, it seems these black jazz musicians were singled out for their drug use. I think it's likely that societally, people were just more comfortable using the junkie and addict labels in regard to a largely black community. It really appears that the media and the public unfairly made them the face of drug addiction in America. I'm not a historian, but that's my take. And I think it's been borne out over the decades, maybe most notably in America's 1980s crack epidemic. Okay, speaking of other artists with drug problems, this is a little bit of a side story, but as I was doing my research about the narcotic farm, I came across a couple of sources that mentioned the time that William S. Burroughs spent there. If you need a refresher on Burroughs, I know I did, he was a writer and artist of the 20th century who was pals with Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. Together they formed sort of a triad that was considered the foundation of the Beat Generation counterculture movement of the 60s. Burroughs found success with his first novel, Junkie, in 1953. And a lot of his work, including that book, deals with his addictions, especially to heroin. But he has a pretty insane backstory. There's a lot to tell, and I'm not going to get too into it since that's not the subject of this episode, but here's just a taste. Around 1950, Burroughs headed to Mexico to escape imprisonment, I believe for something related to drug charges. He went with his wife, Joan Vollmer, and their kids, and intended to stay for at least five years until the statute of limitations on his criminal charges back in Louisiana would be up. They had a tough time in Mexico, mostly due to his and his wife's severe struggles with addiction. One night when they were both wasted, Burroughs reportedly took a gun and told Joan, it's time for our William Tell Act. A glass was placed on top of her head, and Burroughs took his shot, shooting her in the head, and she died. However, I'm not really sure if that's exactly how it happened. Right afterwards, Burroughs changed the story and claimed that actually he just took his gun out to show it to his friends, accidentally dropped it on the table, and it fired, the bullet accidentally striking and killing his wife. The rest of the story is a little bit murky with delayed trials and bribery of Mexican lawyers, officials, and ballistics experts, so I'm not sure what the real story was, but ultimately, he skipped back to the United States and was convicted in absentia for the killing and given a two-year sentence, which was suspended. Basically, he faced no consequences. 
So, regardless of the details, it seems clear that he was an asshole who killed his wife by being an idiot. Sadly, Joan Vollmer's life and death became just a footnote in the popular memory of a quote-unquote great artist. In regard to his responsibility in killing his wife, it seems that Burroughs turned to some really strange ideas about magic and sorcery to make sense of the events and, in my opinion, absolve himself. He wrote about the event as something that exposed him to possession by something he called the ugly spirit. So, of course, it was all about him and totally not his fault. Here's what he wrote. I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I would never have become a writer but for Joan's death, and to a realization of the extent to which this event has motivated and formulated my writing. I live with the constant threat of possession, and a constant need to escape from possession, from control. So, the death of Joan brought me in contact with the invader, the ugly spirit, and maneuvered me into a lifelong struggle in which I have had no choice except to write my way out. It's interesting to me that this guy later became kind of a folk hero. Don't at me, Burroughs fans. But I thought you guys might like to hear this super weird side story about how murdering a woman while possessed by a spirit was a great career maker for him, and what he had to say about the narcotics farm. The meals were excellent. (laughs) Yeah, that's what he had to say about his stay at Narco. I guess they didn't cure him. Okay, so let's leave Burroughs behind and get back to the narco farm. The ideas that drove the development of the narcotic farm facility were really based on progressive morality principles. They had this idea that drug addicts deserved some compassion and that they needed specific types of treatment that would include therapy, good food, fresh air, recreation, and activities to keep them occupied and productive. So the farm aspect of the narcotic farm is just what it sounds like. Prisoners and residents would do farm jobs like working in the fields and milking cows. Now, remember, while this facility was in rural Kentucky, many of the patients were from New York City and other large metropolitan areas of the U.S., so this farm thing may have been a brand new experience for many of them. So far, I think this sounds pretty good because it was basically the beginning of the concept of compassionate care and treatment for people addicted to drugs. It essentially marked a hopeful shift away from more punitive ways of dealing with drug addiction and toward the more modern concept of addiction as a disease worthy of study and treatment, or as a public health matter rather than solely as a criminal matter. While previously addicts who ran into trouble with the law would get thrown in a prison cell and have to go cold turkey, At Narco, the patients would be weaned down slowly, a little more humanely, and they received other medical care and mental health counseling. People were pretty optimistic about this plan, and it sounds pretty similar to a lot of treatment options available today, 
not coincidentally, but as we will learn, it simply did not work as well as you might think. Many of the people who ended up in this facility did not necessarily want to stop using drugs. Many of them were there involuntarily due to their prison sentences, and some of the others were there simply out of desperation after hitting a rock bottom. After all, this place had free room and board for six months, which would have been pretty attractive to the desperate with nowhere to go. This place was more or less an option of last resort for people whose problems had driven them beyond being able to sustain a day-to-day life, and it got them off the streets. This was kind of a worst of the worst, if you'll excuse the phrase. I don't mean to denigrate the patients. I think this particularly was a problem for the psychological aspect of the treatment. I'm generalizing, but counseling and therapy may not be very effective when the patient is unwilling or even hostile to their treatment. In other words, the correctional setting may not have been the most conducive to psychiatric breakthroughs. The staff at the facility were certainly optimistic and well-meaning, but as time went on and it appeared that treatments were not effective, discouragement and disillusionment began to set in. Relapse rates were very high for those who left the facility, and they would end up coming back, which of course showed that the treatment had not worked. As staff became more and more disillusioned and hopeless, the facility began to resemble less of the little utopia for curing addicts and more of another system of incarceration and control. Narco patients didn't have any follow-up or support after they left the facility, and reportedly about 90% of them relapsed. It's not necessarily that they wanted to go back to using, but they didn't have anything to go on except willpower. While the prevailing popular ideas about bad habits, especially drug use, tend to rely on moralizing and willpower or a desire to quit, recent research suggests that willpower doesn't work the way we think it does and possibly isn't even real. Yeah. So the idea of willpower is another can of worms, which I'll have to address on another episode. So that was the treatment side of things, and it didn't seem to be going all that well. But there was another side, the research. Research was housed in a separate wing of the massive, hulking Art Deco narco facility, and was called the Addiction Research Center, or ARC. This was basically the first time that serious scientists and doctors had begun to take a look at the physiological components of addiction and treatment. They believed that science would uncover a cure, and that once they found it, addiction would be a medical problem with a medical solution not the destructive and intractable problem that society so far had failed to make headway on. 
In order to find effective treatments, scientists needed to begin to understand even the very most basic mechanisms of addiction. It may seem a little bit strange to us now, but at the time, this was all a complete mystery. Patients at Narco could volunteer to take part in the research. This would typically involve scenarios where they were given doses of various drugs and then observed. They would speak to the researchers, describing what they were experiencing in real time. There are some surreal videos of this research, and it's pretty interesting. What I've seen is in black and white and definitely smacks of that sort of 1950s style of narration with a scientist or doctor observing and making notes about what was going on with the patient. This is where things get weird. First of all, the incentive for participating was drugs. They'd be given drugs in the experiment, of course, but they'd also be paid for their participation with their drug of choice, or at least something that they liked. And they could either take it then and there or bank it. And basically, they could just go and get whatever was in their account whenever they decided to use it. So a lot of people there who were supposed to be getting clean wanted to be in the experiments because they saw these guys getting drugs in return for doing the experiments. And they were addicted to drugs, so they wanted drugs. Obviously, being in the studies was more appealing than staying in the general population and doing their farm chores. And in this context, their experience with drug use was actually valuable because they had the experience and expertise to give the researchers very good feedback. The researchers experimented with all sorts of drugs, and they didn't tell the subject what they were being given. In some cases, patients would eat a graham cracker. All they knew was it was dosed with something. The ARC studied alcohol, marijuana, morphine, cocaine, heroin, LSD, and more, as well as prescription and over-the-counter drugs. This research was used by the medical profession to figure out how to safely prescribe and dose these types of medications to patients without addicting, harming, or killing them. Realize that prior to this period of time, there wasn't this super solid line of demarcation between prescription drugs and illegal or street drugs. During the Victorian era, drugs were actually a pretty big problem, but drugs were just drugs. You'd go to the pharmacy or chemist and get cocaine, opium, laudanum, or whatever. At some point, physicians started prescribing certain things, and that resulted in a sort of halo effect around prescriptions. So for a long time, people perceived that there was some sort of extreme and intrinsic difference between a drug that was prescribed by a doctor and a drug that you could buy on the street. That thought process may have worked all right for a period of time, but knowing what we know now in the wake of the opioid epidemic, it's time to rethink. Anyway, while the narcotic farm was in operation, doctors were frequently prescribing drugs like synthetic opiates, methadone, tranquilizers, barbiturates, Demerol, Miltown, and many more, all without research into their potential addictive qualities. 
By the way, phenobarbital was sometimes prescribed for babies. Yeah, that's how much they knew about these drugs. Finally, with the opening of the narcotic farm, the Addiction Research Center could test the dangers of all these new drugs hitting the market on their prisoners slash patients. Some of the patients experienced some really bad side effects and withdrawals. Withdrawal itself was also studied. You can imagine just how crucial an understanding of the mechanisms of withdrawal would be to devising treatments for addiction. Back then, doctors really didn't even know basic stuff like how bad it was, what to do about it, or even if a bad withdrawal could kill someone. In some cases, it can, by the way. But what they would do is intentionally induce withdrawal in subjects and then record and study their agony and suffering. There is some footage of this, and it's pretty disturbing. There's this conflict between the urgency of learning something so intrinsic to the science and experience of addiction and withdrawal, and on the other hand, the pain and harm intentionally inflicted on these vulnerable patients. Around the same time in history, the U.S. military and CIA were also getting really interested in drug research, particularly with LSD. There were unethical experiments where subjects were dosed with mind-altering substances without their consent or even knowledge that they were being given the drugs. The CIA also took an interest in the research at the ARC and began funding experiments. But by the 1970s, attitudes were changing in regard to medical ethics and consent. The turning point was when, in the summer of 1972, the media broke a story about how the U.S. Public Health Service had spent 40 years studying about 400 black men in Tuskegee, Alabama, who were infected with syphilis, to study the progress of the disease and its symptoms. This is really, really dark stuff. These symptoms they wanted to study included blindness, paralysis, insanity, and death. The subjects in the study were not told what disease they had and were led to believe that by participating in the study that they would be receiving treatment. In reality, the researchers knew exactly what disease they had and how to treat them, but instead they withheld medication in order to observe the progression of the disease. Ultimately, 128 of the men died, many of their wives became infected, and tragically, some of their infants were born with congenital syphilis. After this story broke in the mainstream, the public was understandably outraged and demanded answers. Lawmakers began holding congressional hearings, which were led by Senator Edward Kennedy. This led to a wide investigation of medical research using human subjects in any setting across America, including at the narcotic farm, and with or without consent of subjects. This informed consent thing was one of the most consequential things to come out of these hearings, because, as was attested to by former narco patients in the hearings, 
The idea of prisoners even being able to give informed consent was in question, especially if benefits not ordinarily available to prisoners were offered as rewards. Offering drugs to someone who is in fact addicted to drugs and saying it's up to you isn't the simple choice that people made it sound like when they said these prisoners were consenting and voluntary. As Senator Kennedy noted in one hearing, they gave you a choice, but you really had no choice at that point. To which the former subject he was interviewing agreed. This is a contentious subject, and many of the people who believe that the Addiction Research Center was unfairly swept up in the congressional hearings and aftermath still claim that what went on at the ARC was completely different from what went on in the CIA, military, and of course at Tuskegee, and that the subjects at Narco were in fact consenting and understood the consequences. Former patients, ARC research subjects, researchers, doctors, and psychiatrists who worked at Narco, and observers and historians all have widely varying opinions about the ethics of what went on there, and they span the entire spectrum from good to bad, but mostly it's complicated. One addiction researcher who worked at the ARC from 1948 to 1952 stated in the 2008 documentary film The Narcotic Farm, I never felt we were taking advantage of them. These were things that all these patients had done to themselves before, and they pretty well knew what the possibilities were, and I never saw a patient that really objected. But then there was the fundamental contradiction between the goal of treating individual patients and the goal of studying subjects, which included maintaining their addictions, for a greater good of understanding addiction and developing treatments. And yeah, some former patients have said that they thought the exchange of drugs or time off a prisoner's sentence for participating in the research experiments was a very positive arrangement. But others say it took time and changing attitudes before they understood in hindsight the dynamics of how they'd been used. After the congressional hearings in 1972, medical research on prisoners pretty much came to a grinding halt, and the narcotic farm was shut down in 1975, both the research and treatment sides. It became a federal prison and remains so today. The things they learned at the narcotic farm became the foundation of our understanding of drug use and addiction science. Everything that is used in drug treatment today was built on the back of the narcotic farm research. And I don't mean to be ethnocentric, but it also set up the framework for much of the world, not just the United States, because it was the only facility of its kind with a large population of subjects for research. So there's this really ambiguous and fraught legacy where a lot of good came out of it, but the data was obtained in a way that would be considered highly unethical today and exploited a vulnerable and largely captive population. This is just one story, but broadly speaking, prisoners have historically been subject to many research abuses. 
Up until the 1970s, ethics wasn't a part of medical training for doctors, and prisoners were considered a perfectly fine population to conduct experiments on, and they were used to study many diseases, including cancer. No laws regulated prison research, and it was well-regarded overall in the scientific community. Something else that is interesting to note is that some of the patients at Narco who weren't cured when they left the facility went west and joined Synanon. In turn, lots of Synanon alumni went on to careers in addiction treatment and helped create the next generation of rehab facilities. So, in a sense, the combined legacy of Narco and Synanon the cult is basically the story of addiction treatment today. There's a whole book about Synanon's legacy in drug treatment by Claire Clark, and I believe I mentioned this book in a different context in the Synanon episode, but I'll link to it again in the show notes in case anyone is interested in that. And if you're like my nephew and you're concerned about the amount of homework given in these episodes, don't worry, all of the links and further reading in the show notes are just suggestions for those who might be interested in learning a little bit more. There will be no pop quiz. There were other takeaways from the rise and fall of the narcotic farm besides just the ethical considerations of research into addiction. The treatment aspect, as I mentioned earlier, had largely failed. While the scientific and medical communities had entered into the narco era optimistic that addiction was a disease to which you could apply a cure, the TLDR was that taking an addict and getting him away from drugs and into a healthy environment with fresh air, recreation, counseling, and exercise on a farm couldn't cure his addiction. In later decades, treatments have skewed more toward community-style interventions with support groups and methadone clinics in communities themselves. Sending addicts off to a facility and then releasing them as cured and calling it a day wasn't considered to be so much of a viable option, although inpatient rehabs remain a large part of addiction options today. The decades following the closure of the narcotic farm have also continued to see a very robust push and pull between punitive and public health-based drug policies. While much progress in addiction treatment has been made and recovery is possible, I hope we can make much more progress in creating more effective interventions and increasing access for those treatments. As I noted at the top of the show, if you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, help is available and links and information are in the show notes. One final note, if anyone knows of any information about female patients at the narcotic farm, please send it my way. When I first wrote this episode, I thought that this was a male-only facility because I didn't see any female patients represented in any of my sources. However, I did finally notice at the beginning of a documentary, they stated that the facility was for male and female patients. 
And when I went looking, I found that the Kentucky Historic Institution's website states that a separate 175-bed unit for women was also on the campus of the narcotic farm, the only facility that treated women with drug addiction. But that's it, and I have never seen any female patient ever interviewed or portrayed in photographs or on film. I'm pretty much positive that the subjects in the research experiments were all male, but I'd really like to find out what female patients' experiences were like at Narco. If you know where to find this information, please send me an email or leave a post on the Facebook page. That's going to be it for this episode of Failed Utopia. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts to help other people find it. Tell your friends about it, and if you want to support the pod directly and help keep new episodes coming, you can donate to the show through the link in the show notes. Connect and stay in the loop on the website, failedutopia.com, or the Facebook page at failedutopiapod. Failed Utopia episodes are written and produced by me, Anna Roberts. The burning palm tree painting featured on the cover is by artist Perry Vasquez. My intro music is by Elliot Middleton. See you next time.